As our kids are making their way out, I'm going to invite you to take your Bible and turn to the little letter of Jude. Little letter of Jude. If you go to Revelation, hang a left, and it's that next book there, sandwiched between 3 John and the book of Revelation. <clears throat> you find your spot there. I want to read the first, uh, well, uh, verses 3 and 4. I was going to say the first three verses, but that wouldn't be right. So verses 3 and 4, I want to read. We covered these a few weeks ago, but they're gonna, they've set up everything in this book thus far, and they're going to set up what we're going to talk about this morning. Jude says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. He says there in verse 4 that some have creeped in. The Great Wall of China is one of the great wonders of the world. It's a massive, massive wall. In fact, it's the longest wall, and it's the largest ancient architectural structure. It was constructed more than 2,300 years ago and finished during the Ming Dynasty. Its winding path, as you can see there, goes up and over rugged country, steep mountains, deep valleys, through deserts, and goes all the way to the coast. Covers over 13,000 miles. If you think about how big that is, the Earth's equator is roughly 24,000 and some odd miles in circumference. If you were to walk the length of the Great Wall of China from one end to the other, up and down the valleys and the mountains, you would travel over 13,000 miles, roughly more than half of the circumference of the equator. has an average height somewhere between 20 to 23 feet. Its tallest portion towers 46 feet into the air. The width of the wall in some places is wide enough to drive a car along the top. It's an enormous structure, as you can see there in the picture. It's clearly one of the great accomplishments of antiquity. And a wall like this is utterly impenetrable. There's no way you can get through it. There's no way that you can go climb over it by yourself. In fact, I learned this past week that the Great Wall of China, because of its greatness, because of its vastness, because of its enormity, was only breached three times. And the three times it was breached... The guards were bribed. When you think about Jude's words here in these verses, you think about what he's saying in this whole letter. You think about the Great Wall of China and the defense that it provides. We understand that a strong defense depends upon strong people. A wall is only as strong as the people who guard it. And this applies to military contests as well as the spiritual battles that you and I face in our own lives. You see, if the church is to contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints, as Jude calls us to in verse 3, then all of us here in the church must be strong and we must be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, as Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. We always face the danger of stumbling, though. Every one of us face the danger of stumbling. Physically, we face the danger of stumbling. If you're not careful, you're not watching where you walk, where you're placing your foot, the danger of stumbling, which leads to a fall, is there. Spiritually, it's the same way. We have the propensity to stumble and to fall. 
So the question, how can we as believers practically contend for the truth so that we will be victorious in a day that we live in, which is none other, not unlike any other day, but the day we live in is a day of falsehood. How can we contend for the truth in an age of falsehood? How can we take Jude's words here and apply them to our lives? How do we listen to his cautions and apply that even to our own ministry as a church? The answer is found in the passage that we're looking at this morning. Look over in verse 17 through the end of this letter. Jude says, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, In the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Jude here gives us the words that we need, the the truth that we need, the assurance that we need that we can walk in this life victoriously without stumbling, that we truly can contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So as you've See here, we're in this study, we're finishing it this morning. Three Sundays, we've been working through this short letter. Jude, who is the half-brother of Jesus, is calling the church to contend for this faith. He understands that there's a great threat coming against the church. It's not just a threat that's coming. This is a threat that is in the church. There are false teachers seeking to destroy the doctrine, the faith that was given to the apostles for the advancement of the kingdom and for the encouragement and betterment of the church. See, Jude understood what we need to understand. It's what I've been saying for the last two Sundays, that the greatest threat to the church and the faith of the church is not something that comes from the outside. It's, it's not a governmental force or societal pressure that really is a threat to the church, those, though those are dangerous. And there are places in the world where if you meet in a congregation like this and you stand behind a, a sacred desk such as this and you preach the word of God and you call people to repentance and faith in Jesus, you can be put in jail. You can lose your life. It's not necessarily so in America, but there are pressures that would cause us or at least lead us to stray from the faith. So we need to be careful and to understand that the dangers facing the church are not so much from the outside, it's coming from the inside. We need to make sure that we hold to a true doctrine of the faith, that we understand the Word of God, that we believe the Word of God. We filter everything that we believe and know and understand through the Word of God, not vice versa. See, when we hear things on the TV or read things in the newspaper, if you even still do that, you might read it online, but when you read books and you listen to teachers and you do all of that, you need to make sure that what you're listening to, you're filtering through the grid of Scripture, not through the Scripture through the grid of societal norms. It's much different. So we need to be aware of the subtlety and the severity of this spiritual poison that seeks to undermine and pervert the Word of God in our lives and in our church. 
So Jude here calls us as believers to stand up and to combat the perversion that seeks to destroy the faith. We also have seen that he calls us to stand back and, and to trust and to rest in the justice of God. We don't have to take up arms and go against people. Though when there is someone in the church that's teaching something different, we are to stand against that. We are to treat them as the Bible would direct us. We are to treat them as, as an unbeliever and call them as what they are, a false teacher leading people astray. But we don't, we don't take justice in our own hands. No, we rest in the justice of God. He knows what's going on, and he will bring everything to account. But this morning, we're going to see another uh, call to stand, and that is a call to stand fast. To stand fast and, and, and to rest in the Lord. Uh, this is a call for, for not passivity. It's a call for assertiveness. It's a trust in the Lord in all things. In fact, we see this throughout Scripture. Do you know that when you're reading the Bible, the greatest commentary on the Bible is not what someone else has said, it's what God has said about his own word. And thankfully, as we read the Bible, we read stories and we read passages that, that will illustrate and, and ex give an example of, of what a biblical truth looks like in someone else's life. And so this called me steadfast and to stand strong and to persevere in the faith is something that we have seen all throughout Scripture. Let me give you a couple examples of this. We see it in Israel as they stand there on the banks of the Red Sea. Exodus chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. You remember the story. The Jews there, they've just come out of Egypt, and God has done this with a mighty hand. I mean, he's plagued Egypt, he's plundered Egypt, and they come out with all of the, the, the wealth of Egypt in their grasp. But they get to the bank of the Red Sea, and they look behind them, and they see Pharaoh and what's left of his men in their chariots coming down upon them. They are trapped with the Red Sea to their backs, the army to their front, and nowhere to escape from either side. And so they began to do what we do, grumble, complain, because of fear. Moses looked at the people, and God had already spoke to Moses because he's, he's a little frantic about this. He's frantic because the people are grumbling at him. And he looks at the people and he says, stand still, watch God, and stay silent right? Just watch the Lord. Be steadfast. Stand fast in your faith and allow God to do what he's going to do. And you know the story. God opened the Red Sea. They went through on dry ground. The Pharaoh and his army began to pursue them through the Red Sea and God closed it in upon those men, killing every single one of them. We see another example in Joshua chapter 6 and there now many, many years after this account that I just mentioned, the people of God are going into conquest and to conquer the promised land. In Joshua chapter 6, Joshua is, is concerned about this. He's now in the place of Moses. He's leading the people of God. And, and, and so he, he's faced with a major, major uh, task, major goal here of going in and, and this little group of people uh, dispelling these mighty nations. In fact, 40 years earlier, the people came back and said, we're like grasshoppers in, in the side of some of them. There's no way we can do this. And now Joshua is, is praying. He's, he's talking to the Lord. And all of a sudden, an angel of the Lord shows up and begins to talk with Joshua. He, Joshua asked him a crazy question. Are you for me or are you against me? And he's like, I'm not for anybody. I'm for the Lord. But here, Joshua, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take the people of God, and I want you to march around this mighty city of Jericho, this city with, with incredible walls like the, the Great Wall of China, walls that cannot be 
penetrated from an outside force. I want you to march around the city one time every day for six days. Then on the seventh day, I want you to march around seven times. Then I want you to blow the trumpet, and I want you to charge toward the walls because when you blow the trumpet, the walls will implode. And I want you to go in, and I want you to take Jericho. And you know the story. They did that. They marched around six days. On the seventh day, they marched around seven different times. They blew the trumpet. The walls fell down, and they went in, and they took the city thus beginning the conquest of the promised land. God called them to stand fast in their faith. Then you go to Judges chapter 6. A few generations removed from what we just looked at there in Joshua chapter 6, and you find Gideon. Gideon is called of God to go and defeat Midian, who has captured and in... in, What's the word I'm looking for? Put it in bondage, the people of God. Sometimes my brain just doesn't catch up with my mouth. You ever have that problem? My processor is a little slow and uh, doesn't catch up sometimes. But in Judges chapter 6, he's called to this great task to, to go against Midian. And you think that he's going to get this mighty army because that's usually what happens throughout Judges. But God does something different. He says, uh, he says um, Gideon, I want you to get men. I want you to call the men of God to come. And they come. And he says, that's, that's too many men. I want you to thin some out. And here's how I want you to thin them out. And then he says, that's too many. I want you to thin some more out. And this is how I want you to thin them out. Comes down to 300 men. And they go and they stand around the city. And, jo- and uh, uh, Gideon here is still a little nervous about this task. And so God says, go down in the, in, into the camp of Midian and listen to how they're talking. And he goes down and he hears that they're fearful because they know that God's on their side. And so he's courageous. He goes back and he says, we can do this, guys. I want you to get some clay pots. I want you to get some torches. Let's surround their camp. And on the count of three, let's break these things. Let's begin to yell. And God's going to do something great. And the Bible tells us there in Judges chapter 6 that he, he confused the Midianites and they began to kill themselves. And God brought about a great victory. All they had to do is stand fast, trust in the Lord, And God was going to do it all. We could go out through the Bible and see story after story, example after example of how God is faithful and fights for his people. And so here, these faithful men of God that we've read about, that we see about in Scripture, they didn't ever passively set back on their spiritual haunches. No, what they did and what they were called to do was to be engaged in the fight, but they understood that the Lord was the one fighting for them and the Lord was the one fighting with them. Some stories, they don't do anything but stand back and watch. Other times, they're in the fight themselves, but all the while, they know that God is the one who's bringing about the victory in their life. Thus, we as God's people must stand fast, trust in the Lord, And believe him for the victory. Let me give you this morning four instructions on how we can stand fast and contend for the faith against those who would seek to destroy it. Four things this morning. First is this. He calls us and tells us that we should expect worldly attacks in verses 17 through 19. He says, remember the the predictions of the apostles. They said to you, verse verse 18, In the last time there will be scoffers following their own godly passions. It is these who cause divisions. These are worldly people. They're devoid of the Spirit. He says, hey, remember and expect that there will be worldly attacks against you as the people of God. And Satan has been attacking God's people from the very beginning. He's been attacking God's Word from the very beginning. We talked about that last week there as you look in Genesis chapter 3 is the enemy came against the word of God, the character of God, and the people of God in the Garden of Eden. See, his greatest tactic 
has been to question the veracity of God's Word, the authority of God's Word, the character of God Himself. That's what He did with Eve. See, He knows that once a person begins to question God's Word, that person is that much more vulnerable to the other attacks because without the truth of the Word of God, there is no defense in your life. It's only the truth that can defend you from the lie. And once He begins to get you to question the truth, you're easy prey. And Jude's call here is then to stand fast. And it begins with this call to remember what Jesus had said through the apostles. Who were the apostles that he speaks of? Well, we know from Scripture that the the term apostle literally means one who is sent with a commission. And so these men who were sent with a commission were sent by the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, from a New Testament standpoint, to be an apostle, you had to be personally a... a, uh, a witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ as well as someone who was personally sent out by the Lord Jesus. Therefore, you come to the New Testament and you see that there's not a lot of people who have the title apostle. It's men like Peter and John and James and the apostle Paul, among a few others. These men spoke with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They spoke on behalf of the Lord. They established the church through the preaching of the gospel and their teaching. In fact, you go to Acts chapter 2 and you see that the early church was built upon the teaching of the apostles. So today there are no more apostles. That is a title and a, a group of men that have gone aside because there's no more need for the apostolic ministry of the church because their ministry still resides in the word of God as they spoke, thus saith the Lord in the New Testament. So we find here a principle at play in this passage. Wherever you find the authentic you will likewise find the counterfeit. That's what he says here. Remember the apostles and what they said, that there's going to be a day that these people will come, they will scoff, they will mock, they will teach something different than the truth. Anytime there's the authentic, you can expect the counterfeit. I don't know about you, but when I go to pay for my gas, and I pay for gas with cash a lot, we used to try to live on a cash system, when I go in there and I give the, the little lady at Sheets my $50 bill, whether it's Vicky Coppage or whatever the other Sheets I'm at, sometimes it's her, and I always like it when it's Vicky because I feel comfortable with Vicky. I know she's not going to be mean to me in there and crazy to me <laughs> because of what I'm about to say. But I go in there with my $50 bill, and it doesn't have to be there, but that's usually where I use a bill like that. And I give it to them, and they will do a couple things. Sometimes they'll look in it. They're looking for that little strip. Sometimes they'll take a marker out and mark on it. What are they doing when they do that? They're making sure it's authentic, right? They're making sure it's not a counterfeit bill. Now, my fear is, is that somehow, some way, the bank gave us a counterfeit bill. And though I go in there with a counterfeit bill, thinking I've got money to pay for a tank of gas, all of a sudden I can't have money to pay for gas, and I don't even have the money that I had in my hand, and so I'm stuck with a $100 debt instead of a $50 tank of gas. That's a fear of mine. You pray for me. <laughs> but anytime you have the authentic, you can expect the counterfeit. And that's what's happening here. There were counterfeit teachers threatening this early church. So Jude reminded his audience that the apostles had predicted this threat. They should not have been surprised that this was happening. See, one way to combat the threat was to weigh their teaching against that of the apostles. He says, expect it. This is what the apostles said. And so take their teaching and weigh it against apostolic teaching. That is the test of truth. And today it's still the same. 
Anytime you hear a preacher, teacher, taking the Bible and, and expounding what they would call as truth, you need to take it, whether it's me or someone else, and you need to weigh it against the teaching of the Word of God. You need to weigh it against what the apostles said, what the prophets said. You need to make sure that you understand the Word of God enough to differentiate between truth and error. You see, the reason people get led astray is because they don't know the truth. And when you don't know the truth, you don't know that what you're believing is error, right? And so that leads us to what we're going to talk about in, in just a little bit of making sure that we are solid in our faith, solid in our understanding of the Word of God. So these attacks are to be expected, but they're going to come from two different fronts. False teachers who attempt to argue away the truth, or they're going to do something a little different. They're going to laugh it away. And so logically, they're going to bring an argument against it to try to denounce the truth, or he says these scoffers or mockers are going to be in the church, and they're going to laugh it away. Ah, you don't believe that stuff. That's old school stuff. You don't believe in that old time religion type business. This is a new day. This is a modern day. You're not going to believe in that stuff that, that, that says we came from, from, a, from two people in a, in a place where God created it when science would tell us something else. You see how they laugh and mock and scoff at the truth of the Word of God. Those are the attacks that come. And so if we're going to stand fast, we're going to contend for this faith, we must first expect these attacks against our faith, and we should not be surprised when it happens or allow it to disillusion us. Instead, we ought to expect the jabs. You ought to expect the jabs. One of my favorite movie series, and I'm sure it's a favorite movie series of at least some of the guys in here, is, is the is Rocky movie series. I mean, there's like 45 Rocky movies. They're all good. Uh, the first one is, it was good enough to get the number two, but I like two through five the best. And then six was pretty good as well, and then the creeds. But in the, in the Rocky series, what happens is, you know, the, the end of the movie is always the big fight. And he's, you know, he's going against Clubber Lang. He's going against Apollo Creed. He's going against Drago, the, the Russian. It's this major fight. There's no way that, that, that Rocky, the underdogs in, in all of these movies, is going to be able to win. But between every round, Rocky will stammer back to the corner. Eyes are shut. He's bleeding. Face is all swollen up. And he's there in the corner drinking some water, listening to what Mickey or Apollo Creed or Duke or or any of the, the coaches that he has, he's listening to what they're coaching him to do next. They're coaching him and, and telling him to, 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 to look for the jab here or to defend there. They're telling him what he needs to do to win the fight. And so we need to expect the jabs and expect the attacks. That's the first instruction. The second is this. Encourage spiritual growth. Encourage spiritual growth. Your Christian life, you need to know this, must never stand still. Back behind our house, there's a, we have a creek that feeds like Lake Randolph, and there's a, a second creek almost that comes up closer to where our yard is, and uh, the water gets stagnant there. It'll get dammed up because of the leaves and limbs and all that stuff, and, and it, just, it doesn't move much. It barely trickles out, and what happens is it gets a film over it. And many times, I believe our Christian lives look like that because they're not moving, they're not growing, they're not doing something, and so they become stagnant, they become stinky. We need to make sure that we're growing and never standing still in our Christian walk. And so as a church, our collective life must never stand still. So there's no such thing as a plateaued Christian. There's no such thing as a plateaued church. You're either moving forward or you're moving 
backwards. There's no middle ground. Let me illustrate this another way. In our neighborhood, there's a, there's a house that's been vacant for several months. We pass it every day, and, um, you know, you look at it, and you're like, man, this house really needs to sell, or, or somebody needs to take care of it. Because you would think that if no one's living in this house, it looks like a pretty nice house. You would think if no one's living in the house, that house is going to look better than if it had six kids and, and a whole family living in it, because you know the wear and tear that we can put on a house. But that's not true. That's the antithetical thinking. See, by being in a house and, and using a house and, and taking care of a house, you actually keep it in better shape than if you just left it dormant. Because if you leave something dormant, nature itself will take care and, and diminish the quality of that house or car or whatever it may be. Nature will destroy. And if we don't take care of our spiritual lives and we allow them to lie dormant, we will be worse than anything else that we could do. And so we need to make sure that we're spiritually growing. Look at verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. He says building up. This is a present active participle. It has this imperative, this imperative sense to it. In other words, what Jude is doing here is he's making it clear that spiritual growth in the life of a believer is, is not an option. Standing fast is not an option for a Christian. Plateau Christianity is not an option for Christians to entertain. And so how do we encourage spiritual growth in our lives? Well, we need to understand that there's a personal as well as a corporate component to the equation. See, I'm responsible for encouraging my own spiritual growth. But I'm also responsible for encouraging the growth in others. And, and it's the same for you. You're responsible for your person, your follower, fellowship of Jesus. But you're also responsible for encouraging the people in the church, right? That's why we come to church. One of the reasons we gather on Sundays is not so you can sit in a pew and listen to a sermon or listen to a teacher in a small group. No, we come to encourage the brethren in the faith. It's not just to be a recipient, it's to be a giver as well. And so there's four ingredients to spiritual growth that he talks about here. There's, first of all, the Word of God. He says your most holy faith. It refers back to verse 3. The faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So a healthy diet of the Word of God is central to spiritual growth. How many people ate breakfast this morning? Some of you didn't eat breakfast. I'm surprised. You're just waiting for that big lunch. I understand. Some people aren't breakfast people. I'm a breakfast person. I like a big breakfast. Had a bowl of cereal this morning, though. That's the way it rolls on Sundays. In and out really quick. Get to church. But a healthy diet of the Word of God is central to your growth. Uh, think about this. I've yet to, met a, yet to meet a strong faithful, fruitful Christian who doesn't have a strong daily devotional walk with Jesus, reading his word, studying his word. So we need to devote ourselves to reading and studying the Bible, seeking the mind of God. If we don't do that, we're never going to grow. But listen here, we don't do it for information, we do it for transformation. It's not so that you can... You can pass the, the Bible quiz, that you can know all the answers when you're in small group and your teacher's asking the question, you can chime in. It's not just so you can win the, the Jeopardy round on the Bible, it's for transformation. We want the Word of God to transform us into the image of Christ. So we need the Word of God. Then secondly, he talks about prayer, praying in the Holy Spirit. This refers to, to praying for that which is consistent with the Spirit's desires, His directives, and His decrees. So the Holy Spirit is the one who reveals how we ought to practically live out the will of God for our lives. 
He's the one who takes the Word of God and, and practically shows us how to flesh that out in our daily life. He also provides the power for living the Christian life. So think of it this way. The reading of the Word of God should always be coupled with prayer. If you don't have one without the other, you're going to walk with a spiritual limp. Because if you, if you just read the Bible and you study the Bible, then you don't have the power that the Spirit of God wants to give you to live what you're reading. If you only have prayer without the, without the Word of God, the knowledge of God, then you're going to have zeal without knowledge. Both are dangerous. Both are detrimental. You need to walk in spiritual balance. Then there's a third thing. He talks about abiding in God's love. Say, keep yourselves in the love of God. Now, you don't need to read that and say, I've got to keep myself saved. No. If he's, saying, if he's saying that in this verse, verse 21, then he's contradicting what he said in verse 1, where he says that Jesus is the one who keeps you in the love of God. So he's not saying keep yourself saved. He's saying you need to abide in this love. You need to enjoy this fellowship that you have with God. You need to to relish in his love. It's much like the relationship that you would have with your spouse, that you spend time with your spouse, that you talk with your spouse, that you enjoy the company of your spouse. We are to enjoy the love of God in our life. It's to be something we experience daily in our lives. But it involves a little bit more than that. It also would involve obeying the word of God. You see, Jesus said in John 15, 10, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. The way that you know you love God is when you keep his commandments. If you love me, Jesus said, you will keep my commandments. So we want to walk in this intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father, with our Savior. We also want to and must obey him. And then fourthly, hoping in Christ's return. He ends up there in verse 22 that we should or verse 21, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Hope is crucial to our spiritual growth. See, our eyes must never be, should always be lifted heavenward. Titus 2 says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. We should have a hopeful expectation of the Lord's return as we await His mercy. So encourage spiritual growth personally, corporately. Thirdly, and I've got to hurry. Man, I say that every Sunday, don't I? If you would listen faster, we would get out of here quicker. I'm putting it on you. Third instruction, employ gospel conversations. Verse 22, he says, have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. And to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by their flesh. You see, there's going to be some who will be led astray in the church. They're going to be drawn away from the truth by false teachers. Largely, it's because they've never been grounded in the faith to begin with. This is why it's so in, in, in such a desperate need for us as believers that when we, first of all, you need to share your faith with other people, right? And then when you share the gospel with other people, you don't just leave them. You have a responsibility to now teach them how to follow God. I mean, think about it. If you were a parent and you went to the, to the hospital because your wife or your, yourself's going to give birth to this new baby, you don't just leave it on the front doorsteps and say, hope you figure this thing out called life. Hope you learn how to feed yourself. Hope you learn how to clothe yourself. Hope you can put yourself inside so that you don't die from the elements of the weather itself. No, we take that young child. We nurture that young child. We feed that young child. We teach that young child to do what that child needs to do to grow and to develop and to become all that that child 
is called to be in God. And so we need to do that with others that we lead to faith in Jesus. And so it comes back here to these who have strayed. Why have they strayed? It's because they've never been grounded in the Word of God. There's three different types of people that he mentions here that we're to employ these gospel conversations with. First of all, he talks about the doubters. He says, have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy. How many times have we been guilty of when somebody leaves the church or begins to believe something different? Did you know that the largest portion of people who become Mormons come from Southern Baptist churches? Did you know that's a reality? If you sit with with a, a Mormon, you know, if the elder so-and-so comes with his protege and they sit in your house and bring their copy of the Book of Mormon and, the, and they begin to, to share with you their gospel plan of salvation, much, it would sound much like what we would share with somebody. I did this when I was in seminary. I got online and requested a Book of Mormon because I was supposed to write a paper on the Church of Latter-day Saints. And so I wanted them to, well, I didn't know they actually delivered. I just needed a Book of Mormon and uh, got online years ago. Man, this is early 2000s. And I lived in Fort Smith, Arkansas. And so that elder guy came, and he brought his protege with him, and, and they sat in my apartment, and I had a couple college kids that wanted to watch, and so uh, we sat there for two, two and a half hours, and we talked, and, and thankfully I knew what I, was, what I believed, and we had a good conversation, but it started out so believable because it sounded so similar to what you would see in the Word of God. But you go further, and you begin to see the error in the way they teach and what they believe. And so... There are people who doubt. So what do we do when people doubt and begin to stray? Many times I think we're guilty of looking at them and judging them and saying, those, those crazy people, they didn't believe Jesus in the first place. No, they believed in Jesus. These people here that he's talking about, these are legitimate followers of Jesus Christ. But because they've never been grounded in their faith, they've just understood the gospel, but they never were able to be taught the word of God and connect all that. Then they hear something new, and they don't know any different. And so they begin to doubt. Is what I believed before really true, or is this true? And, and so they begin to doubt. So our response should be not to be judgmental, but to do what he says here. He says, have mercy on those who doubt. See, when those who are, un, who are unsteady, like Peter would say in 2 Peter 2.14, when they're wavering, we should have mercy on them. We should go after them. They need discipleship. And this is going to require love. It's going to require patience. We must see them as immature believers. And when you're dealing with immaturity, you need to just be patient there because they're not going to think like you think. They're not going to believe like you think. We need to be patient with them like we would be patient with our children, understanding their immaturity, understanding that they're not going to see things the way we do, which means we're going to have to love them a whole lot more in our patience. We're going to have to show them the love of Jesus because if we come at them harsh and brutal, then they're going to say that's absolutely something that I don't want because I'm getting love over here in this new teaching that I believe. Does that make sense? The second group he talks about are what we might call deserters. He says others by snatching them out of the fire. There, there seems here to be people who have already left this fellowship. And so they need to be snatched out of the fire. This requires that we as believers would go after them. Those who have de deserted the church, that we actively go after them. It means we got to get on the phone. It means we got to say, hey, meet me for lunch. Meet me for coffee. Let's talk. Come over to my house. We have to go after them and snatch them out of the fire using the same techniques that we would 
use with the doubters. Then he talks about the dangerous there in verse 23. To others show mercy with fear. Show mercy with fear. This speaks of using caution. See, when we attempt to help those who have fallen prey to doctrinal error, we need to be careful not to become trapped ourselves. Never think that you're above the ability to fall. Never think that you're so astute in your understanding of the Word of God that you won't believe something that's false. Always be humble. Always understand that the devil wants to trip you up. And when you go and you work with someone who is believing something that's wrong, they faith in the Jesus, but they've never been grounded, or perhaps they've been grounded, but, but life situations has hit them in such a way that now they're beginning to question the goodness of God. And so they're maybe wavering to go over here to this new teaching that's appealing to them. Understand that when you get in the trenches, you are just as likely to get drug under as well. Do you know that when someone is drowning, the most dangerous thing that you can do is to jump in after them? I've never been a lifeguard. I've watched lifeguards a couple times rescue people out of a pool or out of the lake. And it's, a, it's quite a, a, an ordeal. When you think about it, when you're swimming out to help somebody and they're flailing, and the only thing that's on the mind of the person who is drowning is, I have to live. That person's reflexes and, and this survival of the, I was going to say fittest, but that sounds Darwinian, this, this emotion, this, this, uh, this idea that I have to win, live at all costs kicks in, and they will do anything and everything because they're not even thinking about it to get to safety, which means they will push you down in order for them to get their head above water. So you've got to be cautious when you go and rescue someone who is drowning. We need to be cautious when we seek to rescue those who are drowning in a false teaching. So we need to employ gospel conversations. We bring it back in mercy, in grace, in truth to the Word of God, and we speak the Word of God to them, employing the gospel. You never outgrow the gospel. Fourthly, this fourth instruction is this, entrust yourself to Jesus. Verse 24 and 25, this wonderful doxology here. Jude calls us to entrust ourselves to the Lord. It contains a wealth of spiritual truth for us. See, if we want to keep our feet on, on the ground spiritual, if we want to walk straight in our Christian life, if we don't want to stumble, then we have to entrust ourselves to Jesus. You don't have the power to do anything. You don't have the strength and ability to do anything. It's only through Jesus. He and he alone is able to keep you from stumbling and falling away, as verse 24 points out to us. So he speaks of three things here that this requires. First of all, unconditional surrender. Keep yourselves from stumbling and to present you blameless. That's what he wants to do before the presence of his glory. How do we do that? Unconditional surrender to Jesus. Surrender sounds like the antithesis of standing fast, though. Taking up arms. Doesn't sound like you're going to... Uh, that, that sounds more like you're going to go fight than to surrender. But to fight, we have to surrender to Jesus, Right? Anytime the Israelites in the Old Testament went out on their own ability, they lost every time. But when they surrendered to God, they won. You remember? I mentioned last week, and I think I referenced it briefly this morning, numbers there in 13 through 15, the 10 spies came back and they gave a bad report. The two spies came back, Joshua and Caleb, and they says, we can do it. We must do it. The other says, we can't do it. And, and, and so judgment of God fell upon the people of there. And he says, uh, these 
these ten guys, they actually died of a plague, and then the, the, the curse was 40 years of wandering in the wilderness until this generation dies off. And when God was finished judging the people, the people of God said, we've done something wrong. We shouldn't have done this. And so they do what we do, and that is try to do what they were supposed to do in the front end. And so they went out without the blessing of God. They went out without even the, the leader of God, Moses himself. And what happened? They were sorely defeated by the, by the enemy there. So anytime we begin to do something in our own power, we're going to be defeated. We need to be surrendered to the Lord. Uh, Jude, earlier this, in this letter, he references the archangel Michael there in verse 9. He says, even Michael, the archangel, didn't stand in his own power against Satan. He said, no, the Lord rebuke you. He rested and he trusted in the Lord's power, not in his own power. Michael unconditionally surrendered himself to the Lord. Second thing it's going to require is biblical fidelity. We have to be married, faithful to the word of God. We contend for the faith. This is God's word given to us. And there's power in it, which means there's no power without it. So we must remain true to all of God's word. Even those portions that don't sound appealing to a culture that we live in. We are a Bible people. We're a Bible church. Biblical fidelity. Third thing it requires is a devotional walk. The fellowship Adam and Eve had with with God there in the garden is the type of devotional walk that we want to seek in our own lives. It's intimate. It's honest. It's life-giving. In seminary, many, many years ago, I wrote a paper on... Actually, it was my doctoral stuff, so it wasn't that long ago. I I wrote a paper on Billy Sunday. You remember who Billy Sunday is? He was a great revival preacher in the early 20th century. Uh, baseball player in the late 19th century, and that, I mean, just a phenomenal athlete there in, in the Midwest, and, uh, and then became a preacher. And he would use his athleticism to uh, help people keep their attention as he preached. I mean, he'd literally like climb, climb up on the pulpit and, and do all kinds of athletic feats, like stand up there and jump off. I mean, he was crazy, man. It, was, it would have been awesome to watch if they had television back then. I would have tuned in for it. But he was an amazing preacher, and uh, it's said of him that when he would go into a city and he would begin to talk to people and they would come to Christ, or when he would be training the church members to, to uh, disciple those who were going to respond to the gospel, he would tell them there's three things that you need to do as a new Christian. There's three things that you need to teach a new Christian. First of all, you need to read the Word of God. You need, as a new follower of Jesus, you need to read the Word of God and allow God to speak to you, right? And then you, secondly, you need to pray. You need to talk back to God. You need to listen to God from His Word, and you need to pray and talk to God in and through prayer. And then there's a third thing that needs to be part of your Christian life. You would say, then you need to go and you need to talk to others about God. And I would say those three things ought to be indicative of all of our lives, that we are talking to God, we're listening to God, and we're talking to others about God. That means that we're entrusting ourselves to him in our devotional walk. We are seeking the heart and the face of God in intimacy. So how's your devotional walk? How's your Bible reading? This year, you say, I'm going to read the Bible with you, with you, Pastor, and with some of our other members, and, and you got to week three, and maybe you quit, or maybe you quit in February. Perhaps you're still going strong this morning. Where are you at in your devotional walk? You need to start again today. You need to spend time praying You need to talk to others about Jesus. Let me end with this story. 
You've probably heard this story. Might have even seen it on a movie at some point. The story is told of the men of Troy and how they battled against the uh, Mycenaeans and Greeks. The battle lasted for 10 years. It had been a brutal and costly war. The Greeks sieging, sieging the walls of the great city of Troy without success. They charged it and charged it and charged it and never could bring the great walls of Troy down. In fact, many great fighters had been lost in the fight. Fighters like Achilles of the Greeks and Prince Hector of Troy. The conflict began, if you know the story, when Prince Paris went over and he was on the Greek islands and he struck up a relationship with Helen, the queen of Sparta. And he and her eloped back to Troy. Helen's husband was not happy about that, and he convinced his brother, Agamemnon, to lead an expedition. Agamemnon was the great king of the Greek city-states, and he led this expedition back to Troy to retrieve Helen for his brother. The siege had been largely unsuccessful due to Troy's impenetrable walls, much like the walls of China. But finally, after 10 years of conflict, the Greeks retreated from their camp, and they left only a large wooden horse outside the gates of Troy. You've heard this story. After much debate, I'm sure, the Trojans decided to pull this mysterious gift into the city. They didn't expect anything. They just thought, well, they left. We won. They left us a consolation prize. It's, I don't know what we're going to do with this wooden horse. Maybe we'll chop it up into kindling tomorrow. But for now, let's just leave it here, go to bed, and have a good night. Well, after night fell, the horse opened up, and a group of Greek warriors, led by Odysseus, climbed out and sacked the city of Troy from within the walls. Nothing had been able to penetrate the high, thick walls of Troy during those ten years of war until the day they opened up the gates to the horse. So whether you realize it or not, there's an army of destruction that's all around us. It's deceptive, it's dangerous, it's evil. It seeks to destroy our faith. It wants to divide and conquer our lives. It wants to divide and conquer your family. It wants to divide and conquer your friendships, your relationships, and even the church. Psalm 46 tells us that God is our refuge. He is our defense. He is our high wall and thick gates. And nothing can penetrate his protection unless we open the gate. The Great Wall of China protected the Chinese against the Mongols and the great leader of Genghis Khan until the day that a guard took a bribe and opened the gate. And church, this morning, let us be a people who stand up and combat perversion. Let us stand back and rest in God's justice. And let us stand fast as we expect worldly attacks. Encourage spiritual growth in our own life and within others. As we employ gospel conversations within our relationships. And entrust ourselves to Jesus. As we remember, this is going to require us to unconditionally surrender ourselves. Remain true to the word of God. And constantly lean into Jesus. How's your walk with the Lord? How's your devotional walk? Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that we have a God who loves us and who cares for us. A God who protects us. Lord, you truly are a defense unlike any other. Nothing can can harm us. This morning, if we were to question that, if we would hear that statement and just wonder, is that really true? We could go to the book of Job this morning, there in the first two chapters, and see that, that this man of God who, who loved you, who faithed into you, God, you protected him so much so that Satan himself had to go before God in the throne room of heaven and ask for permission 
So, Lord, you are our shield and buckler. You are our high wall this morning. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to lean into you today, perhaps like never before. Some people in our church may be struggling, not knowing what to do next in their marriage, not knowing what to do next in that relationship, and they just wondering if today needs to be the last day that they stick it out. They wonder if there's any hope there, but God, there's always hope. If we lean into you, if we do what you told us to do, if we trust you, set aside sin, place ourselves on the altar once again. Others are wondering about their finances. There's so much more month than there is paycheck, and they wonder, how can I do this? How can I be faithful in, in my business dealings? How can I be faithful in my giving? How can I be faithful in, in, in just the areas of my life when the pressures are so strong, God? Help us to remember this morning to come back to the Word of God. Rather than building our lives upon fear, rather than building our lives upon pretense of what may happen, build our lives upon the rock-solid truth of the Word of God. Some may need to put their faith in Jesus this morning. Some, Lord, may need to just make the steps here at my feet uh, an altar to the Lord. Just in a similar fashion to the sacrifice in the Old Testament, place themselves on that altar and say, Lord God, I need to just once again surrender afresh and anew to you. So I pray during this time of response, God, we would have freedom to move. Freedom to move. Yesterday at that men's conference, 5,000 men in a room. What a joy it was to see. 1,500 men come to the altar. And to say, God, I need to surrender. I need to believe. I need to yield. I need to give myself afresh to you again. May that be true of us this morning. In Jesus' name. Let's stand.